Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. Hello, everyone. My name is Rachel Wisman, and I'm back again teaching, and I'm super excited to be teaching y'all tonight. Um, Just to get us started, um, who here loves reading books? Because I'm that person who loves to read books, and it will incorporate with what we're talking about. But the book that I'm reading right now for the very first time ever is the whole entire Harry Potter series. I don't know what happens in it, so please don't spoil it, but I'm on Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, the very long one, the one that has 870 pages to be exact. And so right now, the only part I'm enjoying is the beginning, and I've noticed that with all the Harry Potter books, I've been enjoying the beginning because the rest of the story is so long, and then I really enjoy the end. And so tonight, that's kind of how things are going to be set up. We're going to be looking at the bookmark pages pretty much, the very beginning of chapter 13 of Acts, and then the very end of Acts 14. But before we get started with Acts 13 and 14, um, we're going to look at the end of what we learned last week, because all from Acts 1 to 12 has been about Peter's ministry, and that has been predominantly all it's been about. However, this week we took a turning point where we are now um, looking at Paul's ministry from Acts 13 until the end. And there weren't any discussion questions last week about a very important um, people, and then this week there really wasn't any talk or questions about this people. And this was the Church of Antioch. It's a very huge and vital and important role um, in the book of Acts. So we're going to be going a little bit deeper into understanding who um, this church was because we're going to be coming back to it in the future for all of Paul's missionary journeys. So um, to get started, I'm going to share with you a quote from John MacArthur. He wrote, and it was from this dynamic, doctrinally sound, growing, spirit-controlled church at Antioch, that the flag of Gentile missions was unfurled. It had spiritual leaders with a spiritual ministry who went on a spiritual mission, faced spiritual opposition, and experienced spiritual victory. So that is the basis and foundation of how we're going to view tonight. But before we do that, let me pray for us and our time in the Word. Bow your heads with me. Dear Jesus, would you incline our hearts to your testimony and not to selfish gain? Open our eyes that we, that we may behold wondrous things out of your word. Unite our hearts to fear your name. Satisfy us during this time with your steadfast love for our good and for your ultimate glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. So we're going to start off in... Acts 11, 19 through 30. So I would like you to turn there. I won't have it on the screen. So Acts 11, and I'm going to read all of 19 through 30. So I'll give you a couple of seconds to get there. Okay, I'm going to start in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, 
speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Verse uh, 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Last part, verse 27. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So we're going to break down what we just read. It was a lot, but we're going to look at why did the church of Antioch start, who was a part of the church of Antioch, and then what did they do? We just read that. So, for the first one, why were they there? In verse 19, it shares that they were there because of the persecution of Stephen. So, this is a glimpse back into Acts 1-8, where we see um, God telling them that they're going to be making disciples in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And so, this is what caused them to leave and go. The next one is who. Who are the people? We see that there are men of Cyprus, men of Cyrene, um, and they were both diaspora Jews. So these were Jews among the Gentiles after the Babylonian exile. And then we also see that there were Hellenists. These were Jews who spoke Greek and adopted the Greek way of life in verse 20 of chapter 11. So this is just like a mixed hodgepodge of a very diverse group, um, from different countries, different ways of life, just all mixing and being brought together um, as the church. And then I'm sorry, it's a little small, but um, from 22 through 30, you see everything that happens. And so we see that Barnabas is sent by the church in Jerusalem in verse 22. We saw that the grace of uh, Barnabas saw the grace of God. He was glad, and he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. I think that would be really um, profound to have one of the people from the Church of Jerusalem to come up and see that and exhort this very small and very young church. Um, so I bet they were very encouraged by that. And then in verse 24, we see many people were added to the Lord after that. Then Barnabas goes and gets Saul, brings him back, and they stay in Antioch for a year. Whenever I'm reading through Acts 11 and just this part, I was like, bam, 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 bam. Everything's happening so quick. But we actually get to see that they stayed. They were in Antioch with the people. Barnabas knew them. Saul knew them. And I find that very um, good and interesting to know. 
and they taught many people while they were there. So these weren't just random strangers that were coming in. They became their brothers and sisters. And then we see in 27 through 30, um, the church responds to the prophecy that is made by Agabus to send relief to the church in Jerusalem. And they send Paul and they send Barnabas. And then at the end, after um, James is um, killed um, and the death of Herod, Barnabas and Paul return after completing the service of bringing these supplies to them. So that's a very brief um, introduction on the church of Antioch. I just want us to really know who these people were, why they were there as well. So for the remainder of the evening, we're really going to be looking at how we see chapters 13 through 14 and how the church of Antioch is present in that. But I'm going to restate what we, the quote I had said from the beginning, because um, this will be the foundation for what we are going off of. He said it, and it was from this dynamic, doctrinally sound, growing, spirit-controlled church at Antioch that the flag of Gentile missions was unfurled. It had spiritual leaders with a spiritual ministry who went on a spiritual mission faced spiritual opposition, and experienced spiritual victory. So those are the five things we're going to be looking at. Spiritual leadership, ministry, mission, opposition, and victory. So our main time is going to be in, oops, sorry, got a little ahead of myself, Acts 13, 1 through 3. So if you can just move your eyes over to chapter 13 of Acts, I'm going to read that for us. And it says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Neger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Verse 2, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So these are just very short verses, but we're going to dive deep into everything about this. So first, we're going to look at the spiritual leadership. So we see in verse 1 that they talk about prophets and teachers. And my question when I come across this, I'm like, what does it mean by prophets? What does it actually mean by teachers? I'm a teacher, but I don't think they were talking about second grade teachers in this verse. And so for prophets, these were just preachers of God's word. I say just, they had a very important role. They were preachers of God's word and were responsible in early years of the church to instruct the local congregations. So they were preaching on what has been said, what the law has said, and what God has declared for all time. And then teachers were the ones who, they were acknowledged in their mastery of this field, and they were competent in theology and teaching this to the people. And then we see the specific people. We see Barnabas. We saw just a couple of minutes ago in verse 24 how he was a good man. He was a good man because he was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. That is what made him a good man, righteousness in Jesus. And then we see him going to Saul at Tarsus. He brought Saul to Antioch. He discipled Saul in Antioch. And then they go and send relief to Jerusalem. 
this dude is really cool. He just obeys and goes with what the Lord says and commands of him. And it's cool to see how the hand of the Lord was working in and through him. And then we have Simeon. He's from North Africa. And we have Lucius from Africa. Not that much information about them. But then we get to Menean. And this is the lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. And when I came across, I was like, wait, what? Herod the Tetrarch? This is the guy who reigned in Galilee during Jesus' ministry. This is the guy who killed John the Baptist. And so I really do wish that we had a little bit more information about how Menean came to know Jesus because it's just crazy that he was a part of these people. He was a part of Herod who hated Jesus, hated what he was doing. Yet here we see him being a faithful servant in Antioch. And I find that very cool. Okay, so that was all about spiritual leadership. Now we're going to focus on spiritual ministry. I'm going to just read the first part of chapter 13, 2a. And it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. So there's three main points. It was they, worship, and then fasting. Who were they? These were the leaders of the church who we just talked about and also the congregation. And then we see worship as well. Ooh, got my head ahead of myself too soon. Worship. So when I was looking up, what does this worship actually mean? Because when I come across worship, I just think of, oh, they're singing great songs in, with the congregation, but actually um, they were properly ministering in an official role. So it's more of ministering um, to the people. And um, I found that said, um, because each believer is an official priest of God, their ministering to the Lord is equally profound with every living sacrifice offered up in faith. So it's really cool that there's a deeper meaning to that they were just worshiping, but they were ministering. They were with the people in their community. They were loving. They were um, reading together. They were with one another. And then the last one we come across is fasting, our most favorite topic ever. And um, maybe it is for you, but for me, it's very convicting and one that I would rather not look at. But it's interesting to see how Jesus um, speaks about it in Matthew 6, 16 through 17. He says, and when you fast, dot, 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 but when you fast. So it wasn't an afterthought or something that he's like, oh, hey, guys, you should start doing this. It was an expectation that the disciples were doing this. And man, does that hit hard for me when I'm like, it's definitely something in the rear view. I see it, but I don't claim it. I don't really want to mess with it. But if we want to become more like Jesus and behold the absolute truth of what the scripture is, we probably should take into account more what fasting means. And I find it interesting that um, Donald Whitney said that fasting is mentioned 77 times in the Bible, yet baptism is only mentioned 75 times in the Bible. And it's, it's just mentioned more um, in Scripture than we think it is. So apparently it's important for us to really take control of and look and dive deeper into. 
Donald Whitney also says, Christians in a gluttonous, denialless, self-indulgent society may struggle to accept and begin the practice of fasting. I mean, if I go without one meal, I can already tell my stomach is grumbling and I can immediately order on the Chick-fil-A app and go get my Chick-fil-A. But um, I think there's more behind this of how quickly we're able to satisfy our desires when, where, and however we want it to. And so for me personally, I've noticed a lack of yielding to um, what the Lord says and what um, he says about fasting, how those groanings when we do um, separate ourselves from eating and partaking in meals acknowledge that there is a hunger in us and something that only the Lord can truly satisfy, yet we take it into our own hands to grab and take away. And so as I was looking up um, different purposes of fasting, um, Donald Whitney has a great book of spiritual disciplines. There are all these types of um, purposes that I never once thought of. I just thought of, I need an answer, I'm going to fast, then I'll make my decision. But it's a lot more broader. It's there to strengthen our prayer, to seek God's guidance, to express grief, seek deliverance or protection, express repentance and return to God, humble oneself before God, express concern for the work of God, minister to the needs of others, overcome temptation and dedicate yourself to the Lord, express love and worship. And I was just blown away when I saw this and how each and every one is backed up in Scripture by different um, points in the Bible where they do these different fastings. And we can't ignore how much we've seen prayer and fasting together in Acts, but also during the main service on Sunday mornings with Ezra and Nehemiah, I can't help but notice how it's mentioned together all the time. And I think the Lord is trying to get our attention with something. So the next thing that we're going to talk about is spiritual mission. So this is the second part of verse 2 in chapter 13, and it says, um, I'll just read all chapter 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So John MacArthur states they were his men to use as he would and send wherever he desired. And if I was one of the church members in Antioch, and the Holy Spirit said, hey, how about y'all choose two guys to go um, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, I probably would not choose Saul and Barnabas since they were so heavily involved in the church of Antioch. Um, But that's not what happened. That's not what the Lord did. Um, He was the one who said, set apart for me these two. And yet they still obeyed, and even the congregation obeyed and trusted in God's um, sovereignty and faithfulness over this. And I find it very interesting that this church, the Antioch church, as John MacArthur says, did not concoct schemes. They didn't map out strategies to reach the Gentile world. Instead, it just concentrated on carrying out the ministries God had already entrusted to it. An important feature in discerning God's will for the future is to do his will in the present. I'm going to read that last part. 
An important feature in discerning God's will for the future is to do his will in the present. And wow, that is really insightful as I look into, they were just doing what the Lord called them to do. They were faithful with what God told them to do. Worship, fast, pray, be with one another. Yet, when I think of my very mundane life as a second grade teacher, I'm like, what am I doing? I'm not ministering. I'm not praying. I'm not fasting to the Lord. But I'm like, wow, this really has turned my gaze to look at what I can do faithfully in the present um, to just be in line with what the Lord is doing and working in. We're either working with him or we're trying our best to run away. So the last one is spiritual opposition. So this is pretty much chapters 13 and 14. This is what you heavily discussed in your groups, which I'm very proud of everyone because it was a lot. But we see on up here how Paul starts in Cyprus on the beautiful island. Then he goes back to the coast. He goes to Antioch. He goes to Iconium. And we see every time that he's at these places, he starts in the synagogue with the Jews. And they deny him. They don't want him. So Paul says, adios, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. He probably said a lot more loving and caring, but truth and grace balanced at the same time. And so the Gentiles receive him. But then he gets to Listeria at the very end, and there's no Jews there. It's just Gentiles. This is like the unreached of the unreached people. And they probably have heard of the Jewish customs just because of where they lived. They weren't that far away from it. But they still um, didn't believe in that God, but they did worship a God. They recognized that some, somebody must have created all this. But, and then they assume that um, Paul and Barnabas are those gods, and they tear their clothings and groan at this inadequacy of what they are claiming them to be. And they help turn their focus of like, no, this is the Lord Jesus Christ who has done this. And so they're going, they're facing opposition. I mean, it's just crazy. Nothing is smooth sailing for these guys. And I think that speaks loudly to how we should place our expectations on what um, or how the gospel is going to be received in our lives, in our families, in our workplaces. Do you really expect um, the hard truth yet beautiful truth of the gospel to be received well when it totally goes against the grain and their and the fiber of the be their being of everyone? And I'm like, ooh. Maybe it will. The Lord will soften their hearts. The Lord will prepare them to receive the gospel. But majority of the time in Scripture, it is not well received by them. And so now we have spiritual victory. Verses 27 through 28 in chapter 4. And it says, When they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and there remained no little time with the disciples. And I know if it was me coming back from a very long, hard journey, and I had just experienced all this opposition in the world, I would probably want to talk about that. 
But John MacArthur points out really great that some, like me, may have boasted of all they had done, of all the churches they had planted, the number of converts they had made, and the miracles that they performed, but not Paul and Barnabas. They kept all their accomplishments in the proper perspective. And this is very convicting for me because I am very selfish, but I love how we get to see how Paul and Barnabas spoke about what the Lord did and would that change our hearts and change our perspective to look and actually praise the Lord for what he's done in our life and not focus it on ourself. So in closing, we had spiritual leadership, spiritual ministry, mission, opposition, victory. For spiritual leadership, whose hand are you underneath? Is, can you directly see, like in chapter 11, that the hand of the Lord is upon you? Can you see the hand of the Lord upon the ministry in which you're at? And so Psalm 25, 4 through 5 is a plea that I've been making recently. And it says, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I will wait all the day long. And Andrew Murray has a great little short devotional called Waiting on God. And he says, The Father in heaven is so interested in his children and so longs to have his life at every step in his will and his life that he is willing to keep his guidance entirely in his own hands. He knows so well that we are unable to do what us really, to do in us what is really holy and heavenly, except as he works it in us that he means his very demands to become promises of what he will do in watching over and leading us all the day long, not only in special difficulties and times of perplexity, but in the common course of everyday life. We may count upon him to teach us his war and show us his path. And so what I would ask us, are we women of the Lord submitting to, submitting to the leadership of the Lord, and he is, is he renewing us? Are we going to this truth to create our expectations for him to change and mold and shape us, or are we going to our phones, what internet has to say, or just your truth is your truth, you do you, boo? No. Would this be what molds and shapes us? And then we see spiritual ministry. Are we working with the Lord and what he is currently doing, or are we trying to pave our own path in our own way? And how can we implement, and what can we implement to yield our perceived authority to the Lord? I think scripture is very clear about this, where we saw the church of Antioch praying and fasting. Those are very two important things. Um, I don't remember who said this, but um, they said the weapons of the Lord are few, but they are very mighty and very strong. And then spiritual mission, Um, just like ministry, are we working with what the Lord is doing? Are we yielding to him? And then spiritual opposition, what version of the gospel do you believe in? Because clearly in Acts we see the gospel is not received well. 
And in our culture, the gospel is being softened, it's being morphed and changed to fit whatever these people need it to be. But the gospel in Ephesians states clearly the opposite. In Ephesians 2, 1, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then the holy but comes in, as K.K. Spolt says. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead. There is no pulse in us, guys. Nothing. We were dead in what we were doing in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him. And he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. It does not say for by Rachel's power you have been saved or for by your own works you have been saved. It says for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. That gospel, that true gospel, is going to rub against some people and some people may not like it. But fortunately, we have spiritual victory. In Revelation 21 Um, 2 through 8, it talks about Jesus coming back, the new heaven and the new earth. And he says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with him. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Guys, we have hope in the truth of the gospel. The Lord has already fought this battle. He has already won, so we do not need to be afraid at what is to come because the Holy Spirit is working, and he is moving even in the mundane boringness of our life. And so um, I'm just going to read a liturgy. It's one that has helped me focus my attention and just say, it's not about you, Rachel. And so I'm going to read that. I'm going to pause for a couple of seconds, and then I'll pray us out. It says, I am not the captain of my own destiny, nor even of this new day. So I renounce anew all claim to my own life and desires. I am only yours, O Lord. Lead me by your mercies through these hours that I might spend them well, not in harried pursuits of my own agendas, but rather in good service to you. O Lord, teach me to shepherd the small duties of this day with great love, tending faithfully those tasks you place within my care, and tending with patience and kindness the needs and hearts of those people you place within my reach. Nothing Nothing is too hard for you, Lord Christ. I deposit now all confidence in you that whatever these waking hours bring, my foundations will not be shaken. 
At day's end, I will lay me down again to sleep, knowing that my best hope is well kept in you. In all things, in all things, in the good and the bad, your grace will sustain me. Bid me follow, and I will follow. Oh God, we need you. We are so sinful. And we need you to direct our paths. We need your word to mold us and to shape us into the ladies that you desire of us, God. And Father, would we surrender? Would we renounce all claim that we think we have a grip on in this world? And would we surrender it and lay it down at your feet and know that you are working, our confidence is in you, and that you have won already, Lord, So may we walk in your spirit, and would you move us to um, pause? Would you move us to fast, to pray, to worship, to be with your people, and to share the true gospel, Lord? Would we not weaken it due to our lack of faith, but would we proclaim the truth knowing that you are good, you are God, and you will do as you will, Lord? So be with these ladies through the rest of their week and into the rest of their journey through the book of Acts. Would your hand be upon us, Lord, because underneath your hand is where we need to be. I pray all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.